everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 20, and it's another mailbag episode because I got some great emails that have come in over the last couple of weeks. So today we're going to talk a little bit about trees as crops. How are they farmed? We're going to talk a little bit more about plywood, but a specific type of lumber core plywood. I want to talk about ways to find substitute species. Say you found a particular species that works well and you want to find something that works similar because you can't find the primary anymore. Talk a little bit about sticking your wood, pest control, and finally, smoking meat. That's for you, Mark Spagnolo. So let's jump in here. Uh, first things first, I want to say thanks to my new patrons jack rick brody and tomaso tomaso buddy old time friend of the wood talk show good to good to have you uh, supporting us over the lumber update here thank you guys if you are interested in sponsoring the show go to patreon.com slash lumber update and there's all kinds of little levels you can support me there love it it just makes the show so much easier to keep it going really really appreciate that So I've got a little bit of feedback from some previous episodes, and this one warms my heart. This comes from Tim. He says, after listening to your lumber buying guide, I was driving along and I saw a cherry log in a farmer's field and asked if I could buy it. Farmer's response was, I'm going to cut it up for firewood. He ended up giving it to me, a nine foot, 32 inches in diameter. I will get about 300 board feet of really nice cherry. I do have a chainsaw mill, but not aggressive about sourcing logs since I only do three or four projects a year. Thanks, Shannon. I would not have thought to keep an eye out for logs laying about. So there we go. Lumber is everywhere. And once you start kind of open your eyes to where the other sources outside of just my lumber yard or my Home Depot or, you know, my Woodcraft or Rockler, you'd be surprised how much you start to see. I know when I started getting into green woodworking and specifically looking for green lumber, I started seeing it everywhere. I mean, just think about it. You go through any neighborhood and somebody's taken down a tree. Somebody's got some um, log rounds cut into, you know, bucked into shorter links, laying out of the curb for the city to come pick up. Or there's a log laying here or a tree falling there. It's kind of everywhere. And if you do have the wherewithal to either get it sawn or saw it yourself, you'd be surprised how much you can get. And this continues on like a couple weeks ago, I heard from someone that had taken me up on the whole cabinet maker thing and went to a local cabinet maker and the cabinet maker was like, yes, please take our trash, you know, and they had six foot boards and five foot boards and four foot boards. It's it's kind of everywhere. And once you start looking outside of the normal quote, air quote, normal sources, you'd be surprised what you can find. So um, that's great. Thanks for uh, that feedback, Tim. Now, I do have to say... Let's say, I don't know the total number, but let's just say I got 10 pieces of feedback this week. Nine of them were basically telling me I'm an idiot and vacuum bags don't exert thousands of pounds per square inch. Yes, I'm aware of that, folks. Believe it or not, I actually got a minor in physics in college. Maybe if I got in a major, I would have known to say 14.7 pounds per square inch due to atmospheric pressure, not thousands of pounds per square inch. Fact of the matter is, folks, when we're talking about vacuum bags, 14.7 pounds per square inch is still a lot of force. That's 14.7 pounds in that square inch over the course of your entire bag. And that's really the important part is it's exerting that 14.7 PSI everywhere 
across the surface, which can be a little hard to do unless you've got a nail steel fashioned veneer press, which yes, that will exert a hell of a lot of force over the entire surface, but it obviously takes up a lot of room. A vacuum bag can be rolled up and stuck in the corner. So I apologize for my hyperbole. It is not thousands of pounds per square inch. It is 14.7 pounds per square inch at sea level before anybody joins in and says, but I live in Denver and it's not the same. Or I live in a hut on top of Anka Anaconda. You know, I'm at base camp in Everest right now. And not only is my tea cold, but my vacuum press is not exerting the pressure I want. Yes, folks, as you move up in altitude, that 14.7 pounds per square inch drop. So I apologize for my cavalier hyperbole there. Thank you, everyone, for correcting me. I um, always appreciate that. So um, I wanted to kind of jump into this little segment. I've talked about Tales from the Yard in the past, and I haven't done it in a couple episodes, but we have been working on a flooring project for a customer on the West Coast. And originally, they came to us wanting uh, teak, wide teak flooring. And when I say wide, we're talking 22, 20, 22 to 25 inch face flooring, really, really wide stuff. And, um, you know, we began looking and sourcing this because we do a lot of business in Myanmar and started to realize, yes, we could do it. But some of the additional specs that the customer, the in the, the homeowner was looking for really led us away from Teak and more towards Iroko because they were looking for specifically quartered grain, a vertical grain, very straight grain throughout. And they want basically zero defects. We started running into a little bit more issues because you think about it, if you want a quarter board that has a 22 to 25 inch face, that's an enormous tree, an enormous tree. And while that is possible to get in genuine Burmese teak, most of that material is being sawn specifically for the yacht industry, for yacht cover boards. And it can be very difficult to get it for uh, additional, I shouldn't say it's difficult, it just becomes highly, highly expensive and almost a waste of a resource to use that material for anything other than teak cover boards because frankly, the, the nautical marine industry is willing to pay for those type of things. So we began looking at additional species and this I, I bring this up because I've got a question about this later on and we, we started to find, okay, well, what, what is the customer looking for? They want that kind of lovely honey brown color that is teak and that was really, and, and the straight grain and that was really the, the only thing that was it. They didn't care about the, you know, the marine, the exterior qualities of teak. They didn't care about the resins, any of that stuff. It was purely about appearance. You want straight grain or quarter grain and that honey brown color. That was it. And because we were doing a composite floor, I forgot to mention that in order to do a 22 to 25 inch face, it needs to be laminated onto a plywood composite core. So really we were going to be sawing into thin veneers, not you know, super, super thin. I, I want to say we ended up with a three sixteenth inch veneer on top. Uh, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. It wasn't, you know, veneer veneer, like commercial veneer, 10th of an inch type stuff. It was meant to be a heavier thickness. So obviously it could be sanded and finished, refinished over the years. So it actually might've been even heavier than three sixteenths. It doesn't matter. Regardless, we were sawing it into thinner pieces to be um, laid up onto a composite core. And that made it even more, uh, made it even sillier really to use good quality teak when you're just going to saw on a veneer. So we began looking for alternatives. And the first thing that popped to mind just with that kind of honey brown color was Iroko. It is a, a very um, close twin in appearance 
to teak. And in fact, because it has lesser resins and less of the other um, 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 uh, chemicals, extractives, that's the word I'm looking for. The other extractives in the mix, it actually has a more uniform color. You have a freshly milled teak and it's very streaky and kind of all kinds of different colors. And granted that mellows out over time, but you still can see some color striations and things like that because of the high resin content. Iroko not being as high, it ends up being a much more uniform color. And that's really what the customer was looking for. Moreover, Iroko is an enormous tree, enormous tree. Um, a lot of the African trees are pretty big in size but this was one where we were able to get it and get the spec of 25 we actually ended up with 27 inch faces that could be trimmed down that were quarter sawn boards those were all then sawn into veneer and then laid up onto composite um, composite flooring and I got to say, this was awesome. We were laying out a section in the yard and the customer was coming to inspect the grade and everything and just holding a 25 inch wide piece of flooring, TNG flooring is a, is a sight to behold. It was really, really cool. And it was one of those kind of cool projects that, you know, people are always asking me about, tell us about these, you know, crazy lifestyles of the rich and famous projects. I don't even know what the total cost on this is going to be. It's very, very high, put it this way. There's only like one machine in the country that is actually possible of creating flooring that wide, laid up flooring that wide. Um, it, it was just a nutso project, but it was one of those cool projects where we were able to leverage knowledge of wood species, knowledge of how wood reacts, knowledge of wood markets, and where it, it didn't make sense to use teak in this case, and where it made sense to use an alternate species like Iroko, and then leverage a bunch of different contacts in the actual flooring industry to find someone who could actually physically make a board that wide. It was just a really Really, really cool project. I wish I could share photos of this, but I can't because the customer just won't allow it. Um, yeah, lifestyles of the rich and famous, right, folks? But anyway, there's another Tales from the Yard wide Oroco flooring. When you think you've got wide flooring, you ain't seen nothing yet. Very, very cool stuff. So, I do want to jump into emails, and a while ago, I got an email from Bob who asked, you know, trees, trees are really crops, right? How, how are they, how are they managed the same way? What, what is, what are good plantation practices, if you will? And I have spoken about this a little in the past, and it's important to recognize that in, in many, in a lot of other countries outside of North America, where we're bringing in the, our version of exotics, there are many, many plantations. And those plantations are dependent upon the species, whether hardwood or softwood. They're planted like you would imagine a regular crop, you know, rows of corn and rows of soybeans and things. They are planted in rows. And good silvicultural practices are basically how you plan what, what the end product needs to be. So if you're wanting to grow trees for lumber, specifically for lumber then you're trying to think about the grade as you go. And ultimately what you want is a really straight bowl or, or trunk, main trunk of the tree with no branches because branches equal knots. So you're actually pruning those trees as they're growing. You're coming in and you're snipping off the, the branches and there's a whole practice around how close do you snip it to the bark, when do you snip the branch off, um, and, and that will produce clearer lumber. 
Now, branches still produce knots, but little tiny branches can produce pin knots. And the more you snip those branches off, the less they're going to try to sprout out later and later. You're kind of training the tree just to go straight up. So you are actually pruning that tree to with the effort of creating clear lumber. And then it has a certain life cycle in which it grows, again, dependent upon the species, dependent upon the climate where it's growing, and you'll have a, a harvesting cycle. Could be 20 years, could be 40 years, could be 80 years. Softwood plantations are grown very differently because softwoods grow very differently than hardwoods. And a lot of times they're just scatter seeded. Literally, imagine like one of those little um, um, fertilizers for your lawn where you crank it and it scatters the seed everywhere. They're doing the same thing with softwoods because softwoods grow really well clumped together in their early on in their life cycle. Eventually, softwoods will drop their lower branches and they'll, the weaker trees will die out and the bigger trees will grow up stronger. They kind of grow clumped together best. So it's best to seed them that way instead of having specific rows. So a softwood plantation does not look like what you would expect rows of crops uh, would look like. On the converse, you've got plantations that are grown not for lumber, but grown for their extractives. Palm plantations come to mind. Palm oil is absolutely huge. And of course, palms grow very, very differently than um, uh, hardwoods and softwoods because palm is really a grass. But they are not, they're, they're not using the tree itself. They're extracting the oil, chopping down the trees, mulching them, burning them, et cetera, raising and starting over. And it's a very, very different um, process depending on what, what the end product is. A pulp plantation is the same. Many times you're talking about softwoods and, and the size of the tree, the diameter of the tree, the grade, none of that stuff even matters. What you're doing is just creating raw material that can then be ground up and turned into pulp for you know paper products, various cellulose products. I mean, wood cellulose is used in, in many, 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 many products, and that's what's coming out of pulp mills. So again, the, the size of the tree and the quality of the tree and all that stuff doesn't really matter. It's the raw material grinding up and pulping the tree that, that they're really looking for. So that plantation can be grown very, very differently. So yes, there are trees are crops and dependent upon what that crop is, it's going to be grown differently for that. In North America, when we're talking about the lumber that woodworkers use, you don't really see a lot of the traditional trees grown in rows type plantations. We have a lot of forest land in North America. We're very fortunate for that. And really what that becomes is less plantation and more managed forest. And you'll find the same thing in uh, other countries like in the Amazon. You don't have trees planted in rows in the rainforest, but you do have highly managed um, concessions within the forest. And I've talked about this in the past where, you know, every tree that comes down is planned and actually GPS tagged. And we know when that tree is, is, is able to be harvested and trees in this quadrant and this hectare can't be harvested for another 40 years. And when you take that tree down, you have to have a certain number of feeder trees around it to take its place in the canopy that will grow up and take those nutrients and fill in that hole in the canopy that's created. It's still a forest and it looks like a forest, but as you cut a tree down, you're thinking very closely about what is the hole that I've just created and how is it going to be filled? So there's a lot of, of silvicultural practices going into that, even though the forest itself looks like a forest and not rows of crops. So 
really all of these trees are crops with the exception of trees in like state forests and national parks and things like that where you can't cut those down and as i've said in the past this is where some of these wildfire issues are coming along because there is no one in there managing that forest there is no one in there pruning those trees or cutting back the brush to ensure proper growth of that tree or managing the feeder trees around the 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 parent trees i don't know if that's a term parent tree you get the idea. So, you know, this can be a real problem as the forest grows out of control in nature. When the forest grows out of control, fire comes and fixes it. And then the forest grows back from a healthier perspective. So it is something to seriously think about. Trees are most definitely crops, Bob. And, you know, you could walk up to a forest and look at the species in the forest and you know assuming again it's not a, a, a protected land a state forest national forest or something you could look at the species and probably get an idea of what the end use of that forest is going to be or just look at the size of the trees and how they are um what their trunks what their bowls look like and you probably get a good feel that this is a hardwood lumber producing forest or this is a softwood multiple product forest this is a pulp forest this is an extractive forest there are um think of fruit trees um what's the word i'm looking for groves groves apple groves peach groves etc the tree itself is not the product it is the fruit that is the product and just like uh like a rose bush if you prune a rose bush it's going to bloom more fully you're going to get more pretty red roses or white roses or whatever the, the species of rose is. Same thing with an apple tree. When you prune it, you're going to get even more branching and more branching is going to produce more fruit, more oranges, more pears, etc. So that tree is being specifically pruned and managed for its fruit. Then you've got other examples where um, like the olive trees are pruned to produce more olives, but then olive wood itself has become a very, very precious lumber commodity. But say, um, you know, you can buy certified Bethlehem olive wood, olive wood from the Holy Land and turn a pin from it or something. Those prunings they're taking off in order to produce more olives are then being sold for pen blanks or small turning blanks and things like that. And the trees themselves are considered sacred. So there's an even a different layer. Not only are you pruning it to produce more fruit, but you're careful of what you prune. You know, if I cut off just this tiny little thing, that byproduct can't be used for anything. So we cut off, we let those branches grow a little bit bigger, then prune, keep the branch and rely upon further branching in order to create more olives. So it's a whole mix of reasons of how you manage and why you manage that particular forest. So yeah, the more we can think of our trees as crops, actually, the better off they're going to be. And again, I've talked about this before. If you ban the use of a particular species, that tree suddenly does have any does not have any use other than it's pretty. And as much as I would love to be noble and say, yes, I love trees as much as the next guy. I love to sit under a shady oak tree just as much as any other tree hugger. But, you know, <sighs> I hate to say it, but you know, lumber is a business. Forests can be a business. And if it's not being managed for some reason, if some uh, revenue is not being generated by it, you have a protected forest, which is great. How do you think we keep our protected forest? There is a whole service called the National Park Service that costs money, right? Every time the government does a shutdown, the parks close. So yeah, it's somewhere, somehow, somebody is making money or spending money in order to keep that forest looking the way it is. So yeah, trees are most definitely crops, Bob. That was kind of a rant. That was more, less of an answering question, more of a rant. 
<laughs> Sorry about that, Bob. So the next question comes from Jacob. He says, I came across a furniture maker on Instagram from a faraway land known to my ancestors as Europe. I've heard of it. I think I've been there once. After watching some of his YouTube videos, I kept seeing that this plywood that I first assumed was shop made until I saw the size of the sheets he had of it. It looks like what I could best describe as stave core. The core is some sort of pine or something with super thick veneer on each side. Lumber is edge glued into a solid slab um, on the inside. Those are the staves that he's talking about. So uh, Jacob, the, the official term for this is lumber core plywood. So instead of having thin plies that are cross banded alternating grain, you actually have boards, usually anywhere from one inch to two inches wide that are glued together into a solid slab. This is, this is the lumber core. Lumber core plywood is most often found Found in the construction of import panels, usually like 18 millimeter thickness panels. And the lumber core plywood consists of a face and back veneer, then that internal layer, uh, excuse me, then a layer of cross banded veneer with um, edge glued lumber in the center. So the lumber core plywood is used for the bending strength and screw holdability because you've got that thick solid core in there. It holds screws really, really well. And you've got that strength of, of solid wood on the inside. The ability of lumber core plywood to kind of bounce back in other words, high stiffness makes it that excellent choice when constructing long or um, uh, um, say wide shelves and cabinets and closets and things. And because of that, we see a lot of lumber core being used in the cabinetry industry. If you need to um, think of a kitchen cabinet and you have like a row of cabinets over the top of, of a stove top. That can be a particularly long run that needs to be supported without sagging. So you wanna use either thicker plywood doubled up for that, or you can also use lumber core for that. So it's just another type of plywood. And generally that face veneer and back veneer is quite thick. So what you were seeing, this guy that had, um, what you were calling it stave core with really thick veneer, it's just called lumber core. So if you're looking for it, it is available. It's not just you know available in that far off mythical land called Europe it is available in North America it's available anywhere you just have to know what to ask for it's not really a type of plywood that you're going to find a lot of of retailers actually keeping in stock but it's something that they can get so herein becomes the issue of you know can you make a special order? How much is the minimum size of the special order they will allow? But um, next time you go to your lumber yard, ask about lumber core plywood and you probably can find some answers on what it takes to actually get some. So this brings me to um, kind of a, a, a question, uh, hopefully a quick question, but something that I know a lot of people ask about. Mike wrote in and he said, can you talk a little bit about when you need to sticker and when you don't? I always stick of the wood I'm bringing in if I know it's relatively fresh cut. But if lumber is dry when you buy it, can you just stack it up and ignore it? Which, by the way, that's known as dead stacking. When you don't put stickers in it, it's called dead stacking. Um, is, is dead stacking asking for trouble down the line because it doesn't have even airflow around it while you waited to get into it? I'm hoping I haven't been inducing a bunch of tension and the hundred or so board feet of sapelia up on my shelves that's supposed to become a sideboard in the spring. So um, dead stacking is, is definitely a thing. When the lumber has been kiln dried, for instance, at our yard, 
We will, when the lumber first comes in, we will do a quick inventory of it and then we will put it on stick and we'll set it out in the air dry yard or sometimes it goes directly into the kiln depending upon what level of dryness it is. Um, or we'll do moisture checks. If we have specifically bought kiln dry, which sometimes we do, we'll do a moisture check and determine, you know, it's KD and here's where it is in relation to all the other lumber on our yard. We will then sticker it to let it come into equilibrium with the rest of the lumber on our yard. Then we dead stack it and put it in our sheds to be available for sale. Dead stacking is perfectly fine. We still have plenty of ventilation around the packs of lumber. No, there's not ventilation through the actual pack of lumber because there are no stickers there. But the other thing you have to think about, Mike, is turn rate. In a lumber lumber yard like ours, our turn rate is very, very high. So we don't have packs of lumber sitting there for two and three years at a time. You know, we do have some lumber that's been out there a while, um, but a while could be a year. Um, And even then, if it comes time to sell it, we'll generally punch it again for moisture and see, does it need anything else? Does it need to to equilibrate? But because of the fact that it is kiln dried, it's going to be relatively stable and it's not going to want to suck up a lot of moisture. And with those boards in the interior that are dead stacked, they're actually not getting a lot of moisture introduced to them because they aren't getting a lot of moist air blowing through them. Or if rain comes and hits the outside of the pack, it doesn't make it into the interior of the pack. So it actually stays relatively constant temperature and humidity on the inside of that pack of lumber. Where that starts to fall apart is if it sits out there for a very, very long time. And this is where sticking could be a good idea, but it's a double-edged sword, right? The minute you stick, you now are allowing air to flow through that pack. And as the the humidity changes, you could be introducing more moisture into a relatively small space. If your sticker is, you know, three quarters of an inch thick or an inch thick, it's just a tiny little space between the boards. And that could be a great opportunity for mold to grow. So in some instances, dead stacking, a lot of people worry about mold being introduced because of dead stacking. Dead stacking actually can prohibit mold in the shorter term, less than a year. Over a very long term, yes, you could have some problems there. As far as introducing tension, no, I don't think so. The the board itself, when it's sawn and when it's kill dried, a lot of that tension um, is, is what's there is there. Um, when you start to saw the board apart, you could release some tension. But if you're dead stacking it and you're weighting it or you're banding it, you're not really introducing additional tension into the stack. So dead stacking is not going to be the end of the world. All the lumber that's in my own shed is dead stacked. Um, I don't need to sticker it because it's closed inside a building and there's very little airflow running through there anyway. So if I did sticker it, whoop-de-doo, right? I mean, the only air circulating is in the small little shed that I have, which is not a whole lot. So you don't feel like don't feel like you need to have things stickered all the time. The reason we sticker is to improve airflow in order to encourage um, equilibrating that lumber, acclimatizing that lumber. Once the lumber is acclimated to your shop, to the particular location where it's being stored, there's really no reason to sticker it anymore. So. Yeah, that should have been a short answer, but it wasn't. That's me, folks. I'm verbose. What can I say? So Chris wrote in 
and he's interested in ways to find substitute species. He says specifically, I'm interested in choosing woods based on their physical characteristics. Um, do you know any substitute species for what have traditionally been very specialized woods? So he gives an example. Spanish cedar is insect repellent and fragrant and is used for lining humidors. Is there another wood like that? Rosewood. It's hard, lovely wood for the fingerboards of stringed instruments. Do you know if anyone has tried something like lignum vitae instead? So Chris, this is, this is going to be a frustrating answer here. Um, The answer is yes. (laughs) There are certainly alternate species for some of these specialized used um, woods out there, like Spanish cedar, um, you know, rosewood. Well, shoot, fretboards and guitars have been oscillating back and forth from various rosewoods to ebony's to Macassar ebony. I've even seen lignum being used before. It's all a matter of what it is you're trying to emulate. What is most important? And this goes back to that uh, Tales from the Yard thing about the Iroko flooring. You need to figure out what what is it you're looking for. You know, uh, uh, say, we'll use your Spanish cedar example. I want to use Spanish cedar because I'm building a humidor. Well, why? Well, because the resin's in it are really good at controlling humidity and there's a certain fragrance there. Well, really what it comes down to when it comes to humidors is that controlling of humidity. Um, it, the fragrance is just the byproduct. You can find lots of of woods that will give you that ice fragrant when they're locked into a box like that. But what you're looking for is the the insect repellent and the ability to control humidity. Well, Spanish cedar does that because of the resins in the wood. And you will find that a lot of softwoods, a lot of cedars in general, even though Spanish cedar is technically not a cedar, um, you will find other species that have that same extractive quality, that same resin content, and they are able to do the exact same thing. And you'll find a lot of humidors are aligned with a variety of species. So the answer is there are three and four different species that can be used. What you need to hone in on is what, what it is that you want to emulate. So in the example of that teak floor, the customer really wanted the color and the, the straight grain. We found a species, Iroko, that has the same color and we were able to get the straight grain in the dimensions that they wanted. So if you were, you know, building a guitar and the fretboard, you want it to be super, super hard, right? You want that that um, uh, stability that comes from the really hard nature, the ability to hold the actual wire frets. And there's a certain acoustical reasons for that as well. So you could just key in on Janko hardness. And of course, lignum being the hardest wood that's out there, that would make a good example, um, a good use of, of, of fretboard material. But then you start to factor in, well, lignum is pretty dang heavy. And what's that going to do to the guitar itself? Is it going to make that guitar feel um, unwieldy? Is it going to be kind of too weighty around the neck? Is that going to cause problems over the long run? So then compare the weight of your lignum against the weight of a rosewood or of an ebony and figure out what are the what are the similarities and or differences there and could that possibly be a problem? And this goes back to what I've talked about in recognizing other species, uncovering other species that can work for your work because you look at their technical specs. If you work with cherry all day long and you know how cherry works and responds to finishes and responds to blades because you've worked with a lot 
understand, look at what those technical specifications of cherry are. And if you want to find a substitute for it, go looking for a species of wood that has those similar technical characteristics. The easiest can be, I want another wood that looks like cherry. Well, then it's a matter of flipping through the internet, going to wooddatabase.com or going through, I actually prefer books here because you literally can flip through them to find wood species that look similar. You know, maybe you come across something like alder. Maybe you look at something, um, Maybe Moranti, maybe, um, what's the one I'm thinking of? Madrone, maybe, a little too pink. But again, you're in that similar color palette and that may be all you're really looking for. And maybe you want that same workability. So you're now you're looking for similar Janka hardness, you're looking for similar bending strength, you're looking for similar shearing strengths. You're finding species with similar numbers and you know that they're going to work similar to cherry. So it all comes down to, if you wanna find substitute species, you know, we could spend all day talking about the substitutes to mahogany. Some are better than others. And the reason some are better than others is dependent upon the application, what you actually want to do with it. What is the important thing? Back to that flooring example, the important thing was color and that straight grain nature. None of the other stuff was important and therefore teak did not make sense because when you think of teak, you think of weather resistance, you think of boat building. And the reason for that is because of the extractives, the resins in the wood and the high silica content in the wood. None of that was important in that particular instance. So finding the substitute was just simply a matter of looking at pictures, really. How do we find another wood that has the same color as teak? And that was Iroko. So there, there's kind of the, the frustrating answer. I, I can't just give you a list of a bunch of species because it so depends upon what it is you want to emulate. And I know I said that right off the bat and I could have closed this question in 15 seconds, but instead I decided to ramble on for another minute or two. So the next question comes from John. He asked about pest control. He says, do you treat the lumber that comes to your yard? If so, what do you use? Do sawyers do anything along these lines before sending out wood? If a home hobbyist receives untreated wood, should anything be done with it to prevent an infestation? Is wood treated for bugs no longer food, food safe? So John, first thing you have to understand is what treating means. Um, if you ship lumber, you do have to have, first of all, if you ship it out of the country, you absolutely must have a phytosanitary certificate, P-H-Y-T-O, not F-I-D-O. Um, you must have that certificate. If you're shipping lumber around, you need to also have um, a, a heat treat certification. The only thing that government bodies, regulatory bodies will accept as far as pest treatment is heat. There could be chemicals that could be used, but there's also just a, the minute you find a chemical that works on, say, powder post beetles, it doesn't work on the emerald ash borer or it doesn't work on thousand canker. So the fungicides, pesticides have been chosen proven to not work 100%. What has been proven is heat, not cold, heat. And a heat treatment certificate says that you have raised that lumber to a certain temperature and held it there for a certain amount of time. That is the only thing that will kill 100% of the bugs uh, and, and the infestation. Moreover, kiln drying lumber makes it much less appetizing to bugs. So it doesn't mean that they won't go after it if there's nothing else for them to go after, but it's really a last resort. You know, it's, it's, it's choosing to eat, you know, a saltine cracker that's been left out on the counter for a week next to the package of saltine crackers that's still in the fresh pack. 
maybe not the best example, but so they are heat treating a board not only kills any pests that are in there, but it makes it very, very unappealing for pests going forward. There is no chemical that's being sprayed on the board itself. Now, that's not to say that some misguided person out there isn't doing this, but this is kind of, you know, when you say treating lumber, I'm thinking pressure treated material, and that's not in the hardwood world. Treatment pest control is done via heat. So um, yes, people, legitimate sawyers, lumber yards that are drying their material and they're shipping their material around are seeking that heat treatment certification. Moreover, if they're dealing with a species that is particularly um, infested, like oak, like ash, like walnut now, um, in order to ship it across state lines, there are quarantines in place. You absolutely must have a heat treatment certificate in order to get it off your lumber yard, to get it off your property. You need to have a heat treatment certificate. So yes, the short answer is yes, this is being done. People who are sawing up logs in their backyard, um, no, they're, they're not getting heat treatment certificates. Air dried lumber is not getting a heat treatment certificate. You have to look out for the boring holes and sawdust piles to see if there are bugs coming into it. But what this means is that the quote unquote treatment that's being done is not a chemical treatment. So it is not going to be you know, no longer wood safe. So it's not really something you have to worry about chemicals and things like that. Again, I'm not going to say that no one out there is doing it. There could be somebody out in the backwoods who's treating it with grandpa's pest juice. Um, it's just not professionally done anymore. It's not something we see done at all. And if you did it, you still wouldn't be able to ship your lumber because you don't have the heat treatment certificate. And this leads into the question from Nick. He says, in addition of woodworking being a hobby, I like to smoke meats. Actually, he says, I like to smoke the meats, <laughs> all the meats. I'm curious if there's any reason why I can't use cut off hardwood lumber in my smoker. What I'm mainly concerned with is chemicals the wood may be sprayed with. I don't use the last few inches of the board. So there we go, Nick. There are not chemicals being sprayed on this lumber. Now, it is good to say you don't use the last few inches of the board because that's generally where we're applying an insealer, um, a wax-based or even a latex paint, and that can seep in a little bit and you don't want that in. Um, but no, that nobody is spraying the wood with any particular chemicals. Um, if you are uncertain, if you're looking at a piece of wood that's that you know you're, you're really uncertain about, throw it in the fire. And if it doesn't smell right, may have been sprayed with something. But again, that's just not a common practice anymore. Heat treatment is what we use for pesticides, so it's perfectly food safe, and there's no reason why you couldn't use it in your smoker. Wow, that was a lot of questions, folks. But uh, hey, I appreciate everybody writing in. I appreciate the wide variety of questions we're getting. And um, next episode, I think I'm going to jump into certification schemas a little bit. The uh, ever so fun can of worms known as Forest Stewardship Council, or FSC. And I may even have some time to talk about other certification schemas and, and other things being used in the world that isn't FSC. I've gotten a lot of questions about this. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what FSC means. FSC, I'm going to just say this, it's not a bad thing, but it may not be as wonderful as you think it is. So on that cliffhanger, I will say thanks for listening, everybody, and go buy some lumber.